You're listening to Agile Next, the next generation Agile talk show. I'm Daniel Gulo. And I'm Stephen Forte. Each week, we ask industry leaders to share their past experiences with Agile practices and to provide their insights into where Agile's heading to next. The show is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and by visiting our website at www.agilenext.tv. This episode is brought to you by Applebrook Consulting and Fresco Capital. Whatever your Agile needs, Applebrook Consulting can help with training and coaching. Visit our website at www.apple-brook.com. Fresco Capital is a global venture capital firm focusing on entrepreneurs building global businesses. Visit our website at fresco.vc. Episode 33, February 16th, 2017. Today we're speaking with Ken Fritz. Ken has over 12 years of experience as a developer, product owner, trainer, and coach with various different organizations. He currently works for Solutions IQ as an Agile coach and trainer. Ken also has experience as a firefighter and paramedic and in his spare time enjoys building furniture in his home shop. So Ken, welcome to the show. Thanks, Daniel. Good to be here. So in addition to your long career as a developer, you're also a firefighter and paramedic. How have those skills influenced your agility and vice versa? You know, I think uh, it's influenced my career in a number of different ways. Um, You know, I've kind of developed those skills concurrently with development and with agile coaching. But I think what, you know, especially emergency medical services has contributed to that is that it really teaches you how to deal with people on a different level. Um, you know, with, with a lot of the things that we deal with, you know, out on the street as medics, uh, it's, it's kind of critical situations, you know, people that are sick, injured, um, they may be trying to kill themselves or you, um, and it, it lends a lot of perspective to coaching. Um, you know, it's something that I say fairly often, and people say, "Well, how do you stay so calm?" I said, "Well, are you trying to kill me, or are you trying to kill yourself?" No, then we're good. We can work it out. So it, it's kind of that ability to innately sense uh, where people are coming from in, in terms of you know their mental state um, and. And kind of their motivations, and it just it, it helps me stay a little bit more calm because I've seen much worse. The other side of it is that you know most people don't realize that medicine itself is a highly iterative process, and I've I've actually written some things about this, but really what it comes down to is that in you know medical scenarios we try something, we see if it works. Um, if it works, then great, we keep doing more of that. Uh, or we, we may tweak it a little bit. If it doesn't work, we try something else. And it's, it's kind of an iterate until the patient is either better or they're dead. So, you know, there's a very defined endpoint. It's the same thing for, for projects in general. It's that you iterate through your backlog of, of things that, you know, in, the, in cases of projects, you iterate through the functionality that you need to create. In terms of medicine, you iterate through... Um, all the different solutions you can try to a various medical problem and see what's going to work and what doesn't. Uh, and you either continue until the project is completed or, in other words, the patient is healthy again or you've decided that the project either is no longer relevant or 
has run out of budget and hasn't achieved its goals and aka it's failed or in the medical case the patient's dead so you know that's kind of the uh the other the the big things that that that's really done for my coaching career there's a lot of other little things it's taught me um effective time management you know especially in emergency scenarios you don't always have the luxury of time you need to think on your feet you need to think quickly um that really has been an exercise in that skill. Um, it's also taught me, you know, about how to come up with in- innovative solutions to different problems. That, you know, the the simplest solution usually works, and sometimes it it pays to just go with it, see where it goes, and try it from there. So, I think that about covers it. But it's it's an interesting parallel. How have you been able to use agile practices? in the medical service and, and fire service? Well, like I said, it's it's all iterative, but in most cases, I think it, it goes more towards the team building type of um, side of Agile. You know, there's very few occurrences where I'm out there working by myself, and if I am, it doesn't last for very long. Um, you know, a single provider paramedic is there to make sure the patient stays alive until the rest of the crew gets there. So you're always working with a team. And even if you're on your own, you've still got dispatchers and everybody else around you operating as a team. So a lot of what Agile has taught me in terms of building effective teams, uh, building collaborative structures really works well in the back of an ambulance or a fire truck. Um, Trying to use those collaborative methods – Effectively, is something that a lot of people aren't very good at, but I think I've I've had a lot of exposure to, so it's helped. Um, and then on kind of the management side of the fire service, I think agile principles apply, you know, just the same as they would in any other industry. Uh, you know, for instance, one of the things that I did, you know, tangentially to my involvement with the fire service was I also implemented IT infrastructure for the fire department I worked for. Uh, this was a pretty big project, uh, moving to a brand new station. Uh, we built the network infrastructure. We built the servers, phone systems, uh, a number of self-service software tools, and that was a completely agile project. Uh, ended up saving the department uh, almost a quarter million dollars in terms of uh, labor and other costs. So there's been a lot of things um, that have really transferred well. Uh, the other thing that... Uh, you didn't quite mention in my bio, which uh, probably is excusable, I suppose, is that I'm also the route coordinator for the National EMS Memorial Bike Ride. Um, it's, again, one of those kind of tangential things to my involvement in emergency services, but it's a long-distance bike ride uh, this year from Boston to D.C. in honor of those lost in the line of duty, and that is a completely agile planning process. Um, all I'm given at the beginning of the planning cycle is you start here, you end here, and somehow you need to get there in seven days on bicycles. And everything else is you know, kind of managed in the way that I'm most comfortable working and really the only way I do, and that's Agile. Um, I have a Kanban board set up to manage my workflow. I've got a team of a couple people that work with me, and we use those techniques to manage our workflow. And we also do have a retrospective 
at the end of the whole thing. Maybe not as regularly as I'd like, um, although we do kind of get into that practice if things aren't going well. Fortunately, so far this year they are. Um, but we will get together as a group and talk about it you know, after the fact and say, okay, how did we do with this year's ride? Did, did everybody get there safely? That's the number one goal. Um, was everybody happy with it? Are there things that we could have done better to make this process easier? Uh, are there things for next year that we can do to make the ride even better? So there's so many different parallels. I could probably go on about that for quite a while, but I think you get the idea. Yeah, and it's pretty fascinating just hearing you talk about using Agile in these two very different uh, environments than your traditional IT shop, right? I mean, you know, the fire station story is great. And I've never heard someone using the methodology to plan a multi you know, a stage bike ride like that. And I've done a lot of bike racing, so I can see how I could see all the challenges. And I, as you were talking, I was coming off in my head. So it's a, it's a pretty great example. Cool. And, uh, you know, the ride's in May. Feel free to join us. Oh, for sure. And um, thinking about using, think about how you use Agile in these non-traditional environments. Have they influenced the way that you've used Agile in, you know, in the traditional environments? You've been involved in several very large Agile transformations. So I'm sure you've had a lot of challenges and a lot of successes there. Um, you know, can you talk a little bit about how the experiences you had using Agile outside of an IT environment influenced you using it inside of an IT environment? Uh, you know, I think the biggest thing for me um, is that I've learned that the book doesn't really have all the answers. I, I think there's really uh, sometimes a polarizing difference between the two types of coaches that you run into is that there are those that are by the book and there are those that are not. And of course, there's there's always something in between, but I, I think every coach that I know kind of leans one way or the other. And I am very much um, of the bent that will say, you know, if it works for the team, go with it. In a lot of cases, you've got other coaches will say, well, that's not what the scrum guide or this book says. Okay, well, that's fine. It doesn't really matter. I think the experience of applying Agile in different uh, areas, especially you know, in life safety and, and high criticality environments, kind of leads to you saying, "Well, that's great that the book says that, but let's do what works and what works right now." Um, in a lot of cases, you run into some some cases where people will say, "Well, that's not what the book says." Okay, well, is this approach working? And is it working well? Yes, then go with it. I think that's probably the biggest effect for me. Um, in that. You know, you, you kind of learn to realize that, especially after you've applied Agile outside of this environment, that um, the books were built for specific cases using specific experiences. And sometimes your environment may not mirror that. So it may necessitate that you get out of the box a little bit and you need to kind of have that freedom to innovate. And I think that's important. And that resonates really well with me because I was an early rule breaker of Scrum and Agile, uh, partly because I had a startup and I was outsourcing. I couldn't do a daily stand-up, so I had to really innovate and do the daily stand-up at 5 p.m. their time, like 8 a.m. my time and all that kind of stuff. And I started realizing when I started reflecting on it a few years later that all the brands of Agile have all these rules. And in reality, I think it's less about the rules and more about the agile values. And it seems to, what you said really resonates with that. Do you have any opinions on about how, you know, the balance you would strike between using, you know, applying the rules versus, versus adhering toward the values? You know, I, I think I'd almost go extreme here. 
and say that in my mind, there are no rules if you follow the values. Um, and the values become your rules. You know, it's one of those things that, you know, really focus on your team. You know, look at teams of people and how they work together. Um, worry less about, you know, how any one source says how to do this. And certainly consult expert resources. Um, but but kind of get outside that box and, and don't take it as gospel. Because, you know, uh, Daniel and I have gone back and forth on this a few times where, you know, he may have a completely different opinion than me. Mine's always right. But, you know, occasionally um, it, it'll get to, you know, you've got an interesting point there and it's something thought-provoking. You don't necessarily want to lead your your teams or your clients into, well, this is the only way of doing it. And I've actually seen a number of uh, consultants, you know, really – uh, lose credibility for doing exactly that, where they're like, well, this is the solution. Well, that solution doesn't work for us. Well, um, we're going to have to find a way to make it work for you. And that's completely wrong. In a lot of cases, I think it's important to say, okay, well, here's three or four different options that I've seen from experience or I've I've read about we can try. And you need to be open to that. But I think ultimately, like I said before, there's very little in the way of steadfast rules for me. Um, there are a few, of course, but it's really adhere to the values, do what's right for your team, and take what works from all the different sources you have uh, exposure to. And I think that's the other important thing is don't get tied into one answer or one book. Um, you know, we're all really familiar with all the different you know, major books that are out there, whether it's, you know, Ken Schwaber, Mike Cohn, um, whatever it might be, you know, these folks all have great ideas, but they're not the only ideas. So make sure that you're using your resources. You know, this is 2016 getting into 2017 and we've got access to, you know, a wealth of resources that you don't even necessarily have to pay for. So do your homework. Um, and make sure that you have the right kind of coaching support. That's the other big thing that, that I've noticed is that you want coaches with varied backgrounds and you know varied experiences. So you're getting um, kind of a plethora of different opinions rather than, well, this is the rules. This is how you do Agile. And if it doesn't work, then there's something wrong with you. And that's not necessarily ever the case. If this doesn't work there's there may be something with wrong with the approach that we need to look at yeah it's definitely a key to collaborating effectively is finding the uh finding a degree of alignment with others but also having that difference of opinion and um room for different ideas new ideas exchange of ideas and so on so you mentioned some of the resources that are out there um in terms of different books and so on. What are some of the, what are some of your favorite resources that have influenced your coaching approach over the years? Um, you know, I, I've, I struggled to kind of put a, a finger on it because I've just read so many different things. Um, and I am terrible with, with titles and, and stuff like that. You know, I've always found uh, that I go back to a number of different resources just because I like their style. Um, Mike Cohn is a favorite of mine. I, I've worked with him uh, in person 
uh, on a number of occasions, and I, I really like just kind of his style and his approach to things. We tend to align on how we do things. Um, you know, he's he's one of my favorites, but really, I look at so many different things on a regular basis that I, I really have trouble saying, well, I really like this one or I really like that one. Um, and, and in fact, I, I kind of stray away from that in a lot of cases because I, I kind of try to take a fresh approach tempered by experience each time I get to a new client. So it's tell me what you have and then I'll look for appropriate resources that I think match the best. Um, I think it can be an unfortunate bias to say, well, I always use these resources and, you know, they're kind of my gospel. Um, I think that may be kind of a disservice. So I, I guess I've, I've answered your question in, in kind of a little bit of a backwards way there. But I, I think it's important to be flexible in all these things. And it seems like you're taking a one-size-does-not-fit-all approach. I think it's important to realize that Every engagement, no matter how similar the clients may be, uh, every engagement is different. And every little bit of iniquity between them will influence kind of your coaching decision. I, I don't think that you can effectively say, hey, this is our coaching or our transformation package. Um, this is the approach we take every time. That repeatability looks really good in marketing materials. In real life, I'm not sure that it works all that well. Um, now that's not to say that standardized transformation approaches can't work, but I think if you have, you know, these are the materials that we always use and this is the references that we always use. I think things like that do a disservice. Um, I think your better consulting organizations out there will have, you know, this really a library of different things that you can try. And you may have, you know, kind of your consistent plan A that, Normally, when we run into clients like this, this is what we do. And we'll try it and see if it works, just like you would with any kind of Agile project. You know, take, take the simplest solution, your known solution, try it out. Um, did it work? Great. If it did, you know, we're good to go, and let's move forward. If it didn't, we need to be flexible. Um, and I think that's where a number of coaching organizations fall down, is that they don't have the ability to incorporate that flexibility into their approach. It's more... Well, you know, this is what we've done. It's worked at every other client. And, you know, you have to ask, did it really work or did it just appear to work? Um, and that flexibility, I, I think, is necessary, you know, to get away from what has always worked for you in the past if you need to. So that's that's great perspective, Ken. Uh, is there any training or anything you'd like to highlight that you've you've taken, like Lisa's coursework or anything like that? Um, you know, to be completely transparent, I, I haven't had as many opportunities recently as I've liked to get into training. I think the, um, scrum coaching retreat, um, those offerings are great. Uh, I've had the opportunity to attend that. Um, you know, I, I've followed a lot of things online, but in terms of formal in-person training, I, I haven't had the opportunity to do that as much as I'd like to. Um, I've attended some of the workshops that, that Lisa has. Um, I've been to a number of different seminars from some other presenters. Um, and then on top of that, there's the conferences as well. You know, all those things kind of fold together, but it's certainly something that's on my personal backlog um, to kind of find an opportunity to, 
to decelerate a little bit and do some of that formal training. It's just um, it's not an opportunity that's presented itself as much as I'd like it to um, recently. And that just is kind of a uh, function of supply and demand. You know, there's there's lots of coaching opportunities out there. Um, training is one of those things that's awesome long term, but in the short term, it's um, not affecting the bottom line in a positive manner. So sometimes, um, you know, I, I'm guilty of this, and certainly most consulting organizations, including mine, uh, can be, be guilty of this. You know, hey, we've got to go make money because we have to pay the bills. Um, that training thing's great. You can do that later when this client engagement's done. And then at the end of this client engagement, hey, we've got another one that starts next week. Go do it. So, you know, and, and I'm not trying to implicate um, my company whatsoever. You know, the, the opportunities are there and they'll, so they'll certainly support that. Um, but the, at the same time, you know, the, there is always my internal pressure that, hey, I, I need to be billable. I need to go. Um, do my job, and sometimes I, I feel maybe unnecessarily so, but I feel a little bit um, pressured to to go do client work rather than do training. Um, you know, so I I do supplement that with a lot of kind of online self study stuff. I read um, an insane amount of material, and more so nowadays I listen to it. I've got um, an hour and a half commute each way every day uh, to my current client site and I've had that now um, it's been a couple different clients over the past number of years but it's it's been that I've been driving about three to three and a half hours a day every day for the past almost two and a half years um, so there are a lot of uh, you know audio resources uh, things like that 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 I listen to on a regular basis um, that that are very useful Ken, you're you're well known around the community, and and you're actually actively involved in the community. Can you talk a little bit more about your experience with the Scrum coaching retreats that you've been to? Yeah, the last uh, retreat I went to was in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, awesome experience. Um, and Daniel, I think were you an organizer for that one? I, I forget. Yeah, so I, I'm on the global organizing committee for the coaching retreats. Okay. Yeah, I I, I know you were there, and I know you were kind of in charge. Uh, outside of that, there was so much going on and so much to experience with that that it was kind of a blur. So um, there's just it, – it's an incredible opportunity to get there, you know, not only with your fellow coaches but kind of with some of these these luminaries of, um, you know, the, the people that everybody says, you know, like Liz Atkins was there for mine. And um, it's just like – Holy crap! It's it's Liz Atkins, and I've I've seen her present at conferences and things like that. But here she is, you know, person to person, and we can go up and talk to her. And that's one of those opportunities that you just don't find anywhere else. Is these people that are recognized experts in our field that you could just be like, uh, "Hey, I have a question about this," and they answer it, which is so cool. Um, and it's just this this networking opportunity to kind of figure out, okay, who's in the space, who's doing what. And it's, it's just this open opportunity to talk to people and say, hey, you know, I've been working on this at this client and I, I heard you were good at this. Or when you get into some of the, the workshop-driven sessions and you start to hear that, you know, other people are doing similar things that, that you are. And, well, how did you solve this? How did you solve that? And just that, that personal opportunity to really have 
um, discussions with people that are on the same level is fantastic. And I think the leveling thing is the other thing that, that I found was kind of a big deal for me. Um, I've found that the conferences, at least recently, have become of somewhat limited utility for me um, because they are necessarily uh, aimed at a broader audience. I want to hear things that are specific to um, you know, coaching whether it's it's at the enterprise or team level. And I think the best way to do that is to put um, a bunch of coaches together and then pair them up with some of the you know top-level resources in the field and just you put all that brain power together, you're, you're bound to get great things. Um, so I think they're, they're a huge opportunity, and I, I hope I get the opportunity to go to another one soon. Um, it's just, uh, it's again one of those things that I've got to carve out time in my schedule and actually pay attention to it and uh, get my clients to agree to it. A few years ago, there was this movement that conferences, or there was a feeling that conferences would go away, that we could do everything virtually. And what you've described, though, is that in-person interaction is just highly critical from learning from each other. Do you see conferences, because you said you have some frustration with some of the content at conferences today. Do you feel that conferences will start to evolve to move in the direction where it's more bringing people together and letting them learn from each other as opposed to 100 people sitting in a room listening to a lecture? I sure hope they do. I I think that's the direction that um, would be really beneficial for a lot of people. Uh, But I think that's a double-edged sword in that a lot of people aren't comfortable in that that kind of environment where it's one-on-one self-directed learning because some people really want to be spoon-fed the content. So I think there's always going to be that market for you know certain kinds of traditional conferences where hey you go you learn things you're fed the information um, it's kind of low key you know you don't have to really interpersonally interact with people and for large subsets especially people that are new to this that's a really good thing because you get a bulk of learning in a short amount of time in a focused environment and I think that's the other important thing is that um, you you mentioned about the the virtual conferences. I can tell you for at least me, if you don't get me off site somewhere and you want me to do something virtually, it's not going to happen um, because yeah, too I'll many get interruptions. Right. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll get interrupted. You know, people will say, "Hey, come look at this." I'm like, "I'm right in the middle of this right now." Um, you know, for for example, today, um, you know, I'm I'm at a client site and it's certainly it's lunch hour. But I've locked myself away in a conference room because if I tried to do this anywhere else, uh, by the time that we finish recording this, I will have had three or four people stop by and say, hey, you know, I have this problem or I'm running into this or, hey, what do you think about that? Um, which is great. That's my job. But at the same time, it, it takes away from the, the focus experience. So I think there's always an opening for the traditional conferences for the right user groups. Now, for folks that have kind of evolved in their agile journeys, they've been doing this for a while. Um, they really have moved beyond some of that, you know, intro level, um, dictatorial kind of stuff. I think the format of, you know, self-directed, uh, group-based learning is fantastic. Um, the only concern I would have there is, is kind of scalability. Um, if we can get, you know, the, those things to work out now, Daniel, I don't know if you remember how many people we had at, at, this, at the coaching retreat. Um, you may. 
Um, but it, it, it seemed to me that maybe 200-ish, if that. Um, I think it would, be, it would be tough to go beyond that. But then again, there are ways to deal with that kind of scalability as well. Just hold more events. We typically cap them at 85 to 90 to keep them intimate. Gotcha. So I can't count. Um, but you heard it from Daniel, 85 to 90. So maybe that's the right number um, because I felt like or a ratio. I had – Yeah, the, I think the ratio may, might be better. But I did feel like I had the opportunity to, to meet just about everybody. Um, I, I made some good context from that. And I think if it was much bigger than that, uh, you'd kind of get lost in the shuffle. You know, especially because I think this kind of group-based learning really hinges on the fact that you get to know some people, and you know, after the first day, these are kind of the people that you're following around and you're kind of hanging out with because you have similar learning styles or you're dealing with similar problems. Um, so I think that's important as well. Thinking about how conferences are evolving and thinking about how Agile is evolving, what do you think is next for Agile, both in the community level and Agile itself as a methodology? I think we're at a point of transition, and it's funny. I was talking to a, a couple different people, including my wife, about this the other day. Um, you know, I think Agile is starting to transition away from this new way of doing things, uh, from from the, the kind of shiny new methodology to it's Agile. It's just how everybody works. And I, I forget, I, I saw a recent survey um, and I forget the number. I, th- I thought it was something like 60 or 70% of projects or, or companies are starting to use Agile now. There's going to come a time where you know, we hit that, that deceleration point where the companies that are using Agile are doing it as a matter of default, um, that this is just how we do things. Um, and those that are using other methodologies are doing that because it makes sense, not because they just haven't had a chance to try Agile yet. I, I think we're headed that way. Um, which is both encouraging and scary at the same time because for those of us as coaches, that, that kind of starts to constrict the market a little bit. But I don't think that the need for coaching will really ever go away. Uh, I think there's always going to be those opportunities to, to kind of improve. You know? And that's what this business is all about. It's continuous improvement and continual refinement of the process. So I think we're getting away from, or I, I think we will be getting away from, the, you know, oh, Agile, it's this brand new thing. And, well, Agile's been around now for uh, 15 years, right? So it's, it's one of those things that I don't think that we're going to stop evolving, but I think the evolution or the, the trends may change to, okay, well, this is just how we do things now. Um, how, do we, how do we really mature it? How do we scale it? You know, there's so much debate in the scaling community. I think that's another big focus area. You know, how do we really scale it? And I'm not saying that the, the scaling frameworks out there, that there's anything wrong with them, but I think there's room for improvement in that as well. Um, you know, so it, there's lots of different, I think, market pressures that are going to change what the, you know, especially the coaching and training business looks like. Um, the other thing that I think is really going to start to take more of a center stage is technical coaching. And that was one of the things that Daniel kind of alluded to when he introduced me. But I'm, I'm primarily a technical coach nowadays. So I deal with a lot of things around um, XP practices, continuous integration, continuous deployment, refactoring, TDD, all those sorts of things. I think that is a 
relatively, and I'm not going to say completely, but relatively untouched area of the field where, you know, people are, are doing agile practices now. You know, we're doing stand-ups, we're doing sprints, we're doing all the ceremonies and, and motions that it looks like, um, you know, that we're agile. But to really become agile, I think you need to change fundamentally how you work. And in an IT or technical environment, that really the, – the bottom line is you've got to change how you write software. You've got to change from you know, the, uh, the developer that, that sits in his closet by himself, writes some code, um, and you know, well, it works on my machine. Eh, not so much. So it's really getting into teaching people how to collaboratively code, um, doing pairing, doing test-driven development, um, how to automate their workflows because, you know, let's face it, Agile is not only about customer satisfaction, it's all about, it's also about going faster. And to go faster and maintain that pace, you need to have the ability to automate your processes. And that is one of those places where I think there's still a whole lot of work to be done in terms of, of getting not only your tests automated, but your deployments, uh, your development processes. There's so many new tools out there that you know, really accelerate the software development process. All those things, I think, will carry us for quite a while now, really embedding and maturing Agile as a you know, relied-upon work method and maturing technical software development to keep up with it. So that's really where I think we're going to go, you know, in a lot of different ways. Um, and that's personally for me to be selfish for a second. I hope that's the way we go because that's really what I am good at and what I enjoy doing is let's let's figure out how we can write better software. That's the bottom line. It's it's a very pragmatic approach, Ken. Um, so what do you have on your radar as we look out be, to the second half of 2016 and into 2017? Well, you know, uh, that's been something that, that's been a, a kind of in the forefront of my brain recently is um, what do I want to focus on? Uh, I've kind of had a little bit of coaching ADD where I wanted to everything. But I think, um, you know, for me, I, as you mentioned earlier, I'm working on my CEC. Um, I've, I've also kind of tossed around the idea of getting more into training. Um, if it's something I want to do as a change of pace, um, certainly a, a possibility as well. Um, and then the other side of my brain says, hey, uh, it's been a while since you've really written some heavy-duty code. Maybe, maybe I want to do that. But I think to kind of give a consolidated answer, I, I want to work on my, my CEC. I want to work on some formalized education in this space. You know, most of this is, is kind of learned by experience. So I think the the formalized training is going to be a, a big part of my evolution into you know the the next level of coaching, and then kind of getting back to my roots as a developer will just help me remember what's important. So that's really where I think I'm headed. But <laughs> I'm just as agile in this as anything else. Uh, trying to figure out what I want to do is is a changing thing. I want to see what the market does. Um, you know, we all know that this could change in the next couple of months and, you know, what, what is the next big thing? We don't know when it's going to be here. So I try to keep it flexible. Well, it was great talking to you, Ken. Thank you for being on our show today. Absolutely. I, I appreciate the opportunity. It's uh, great to talk to you guys and, and love the show. I think you guys are doing great stuff. 
Next time on Agile Next, we have Raphael Sabah. A big Agile Next thank you to our sponsors, Fresco Capital and Applebrook Consulting. Visit Fresco Capital at frescocapital.com and Applebrook Consulting at apple-brook.com. We hope to see you next week on Agile Next. In the meantime, check out our website at agilenext.tv.